Welcome to Place Prints, a 10-part audio series by David Rudkin that gives a voice to the stories that haunt different locations across the British Isles. The third in the series is titled Grimm's Ditch and is set in North Wessex. This place print will begin after a brief introduction from the writer. The Berkshire Downs have a very ancient feel to them and across them an Iron Age defensive rampart used to run. In a later age, the incomer Saxons fantasized that their great god, Odin, had dug and heaped it up. They called it after him, Grimm's Ditch. Grimm was their title for him when he walked among humankind in mortal disguise. The earthwork is traceable only in fragments now, but still known by the name those Saxons gave it. Grimm's Ditch. It could be the title of a story by M.R. James. And, a style apart, this place print could almost be such a story itself. It tells of a characteristic Jamesian encounter, arid academic, and an irrational force that his arrogance arouses. An avenging wrath. Someone has been this way before you. Let me tell you what I did to Professor Marworth. Oh, you think. You look around at me. Two broken lengths of earthwork and a grassy avenue between. What could I do to anyone? start, the professor is wondering what in this earth has possessed him to volunteer me as a subject on which to address a conference. Suddenly, into his mind, who can say from where, there has one day sprung my name, Grimm's Ditch. That, he thinks, would look good on a conference syllabus. Already he can see the listing. Professor Lindquist Marworth, and as always, he shall need to insist his name be correctly spelt. Derrida Fellow in Semiotic Blah Blah Blah, University of Wherever, Grimm's Ditch, a discourse. Not that he knows what Grimm's Ditch is. He's that sort of man. And note, a discourse, not a lecture. That would need to be tailored to some syllabus. Worse, he would be expected to provide notes for students to transplant wholesale into some examination answer. And certainly not a paper. To offer a paper is to hazard a reply. Then and there from some presuming peer who can take issue, even challenge. Professor Marworth is not in the market for challenge. He's a critic, for God's sake. No, Grimm's Ditch. A discourse. Already he can see the title, my name in gothic print. Grimm's Ditch. All that remains is for him to find out what I am. 
He need not leave his desk. He can go online, can see what Google will dredge up. Then, still online, he can order a detailed map of the region where Google informs him sections of me still survive. Still at his desk, he can access internet pictures of me, wherever I am. But I nag at him. Doesn't he need to come to me, physically, himself, and see me, walk me, indeed, at least a part of me, to be sure of his intellectual footing, as it were? Good visitor, imagine you are he. It's late in April, the day he's decided to devote to me. Afternoon, rather, by the time he reaches here, he has with him the map he ordered online and has booked in at the George. To spare himself unnecessary exertion, he drives the few yards to the small car park by the village bridge, walks the short footpath signposted, arrives at me, takes his first look and feels a disappointment. He's visualized, uh, yes, a grim, desolate place, and has, before even seeing me, already crafted his seductive opening words and rehearsed them aloud as he arrives. Let me set for you the scene. Alas, two bumpy green ridges, a grassy lap between, sprinklings of... Wild flowers, he must suppose, but to none of them, the yellow and the pink, can he put name. And the background twitter of some vociferous bird, too loud for what must be its tiny size. No, no promising atmospheric start to a discourse here. Is that twitter, he idly wonders, lark song? Something of which he has read? Worse, his historical idea of me is a mush. Vague images flail around in it of something he thinks of as ancient British tribes at war with each other across the river. An ancient, according to Google, boundary here. At what historical period, he's not quite clear. Just now he's looking up at my southern rampart. Was I built, perhaps, as a defensive earthwork of some kind? And yes, he's thinking aloud in discourse mode again, Grimm's Ditch. Who is this Grimm? Not the Grimm of the fairy tales, ha ha, but he whom the Saxons called the Grimm One, meaning he in disguise, i.e. their great god Woden, when he walked among men as a mere wanderer, not to be known. And the ditch itself, wasn't that what simple folk once called an orm? monstrous mythical worm petrified in its writhe across the land. The professor is feeling inspired. Already his discourse is beginning to flow, and in his excitement he is, without knowing it, already mounting my rampart, twisting up leftward and rightward between the tussocks and bumps of my grassy slope, as I invite you to do now. From where he first saw me, I seemed not so impressive, but now, as he emerges to stand on my crest, that grassy avenue below does look a surprisingly long way down, deep and significant. Am I really that high? 
He turns to look out across the flat meadowland to where the river is, itself invisible but its sinuous course implied by the curving of the wooded slopes that rise beyond. He recalls that mention somewhere in his internet research that the river here was, at that vague to him historical time, a boundary between Wessex and... what was it? He's not even sure whether here he's on the Wessex bank or not. And suddenly, for all of an instant, he imagines one of his ancient British tribesmen bringing his little son up here to show him the territory of the enemy tribe across the river, yonder. Now, why should Professor Marworth imagine that? He does not see this ancient British father and son very clearly, in fact, he hardly visualises them at all, because it's as though he were looking through their eyes, across at that wooded further bank, seeing the forest there bristling with enemy warriors stealthily advancing, parting the foliage to peer this way to take aim. His picture of these tribesmen is again a mishmash of African, Native American, of war paint, head feathers, arrows, assegais. Again, he is suddenly pricked, and not so idly now, by an unexpected question. What would those tribish people over there have looked like? It begins to knock him somewhat, how imprecise his knowledge in these matters. It is an insecurity he has not felt before. And almost immediately, there nudges into his mind an image of himself, a little boy in darkness, slung over his father's shoulder like Tom's stolen pig in the nursery rhyme bumped up and down as his father starts to run up a steep suburban street beneath a night sky scythed by searchlight beams. Other people are in the street and begin to run too in the same direction. In Marworth's mind, there's the ghostly sound print of a siren wailing. Instantly, again, the image is gone, but it has left a noisy trace of panic and terror jarring in his head. It never quite yields to the bird twitter stealing back in again around him. The memory is unsettling him. That moment with his father, running to the air raid shelter, how many years, how many since he has remembered that? And why remember it now? In this place, totally strange to him. Grimm's Ditch. Almost as though this place has reawakened this picture in his head to jolt him back to his childhood. Innocent, with all before him. No mistakes yet made. Disquieted and brooding, he paces the length of the rampart to and fro. Without realising it, has begun counting his paces out aloud, as though to reassert his footing on the ground. Such thoughts as have come to him here, tribesmen, father and son, the Blitz, his own life since... These sit ill on that smug intellectual train set he prefers to put in motion and call a discourse. No, 
The expensive, double-sided OS map will stay folded in its weatherproof sheath. In the morning, he shall leave for home and advise the conference organisers of a change of title to be announced. But next morning, the OS map is open. Making for his homeward dual carriageway, instead of joining it northbound, he has, on an impulse, suddenly swung off from the junction roundabout onto a westward minor exit instead, and navigated his way here. From this car park where you are now, he cannot see the section of me marked nearby on his map. Bold and conspicuous enough on that, the caterpillar of hatched shading and in Gothic font my name, Grimm's Ditch. But I myself lie below him down the north-facing slope and masked by it. He has to walk back down that road to where he can sight me somewhere away to his leftward, yonder. And walk yet further down. And further. Follow his tracks and see what he sees. He comes at last to a break in the hedgerow, opening onto ploughland. He ventures in there onto a verge of grass. Still he cannot see me, though my course is possibly marked by that raised line of trees yonder to the west. His northward view below is marred, you will agree, by the sprawl of an atomic energy research complex, dominated by a long prison-like building. And away rightward, two close-packed pair of colossal hourglass-shapen cooling towers of a power station. From here, they are eerily silent. A silence rent by the unceasing seethe of traffic ripping northward and southward on the dual carriageway like the blade of a power saw. Even Professor Marworth feels this an intrusion, though that very road has brought him in his quest for me. Yet suddenly, as he looks towards those cooling towers, he's hearing only their titanic silence. And for an instant, so alien they appear, so unreal, two-dimensional, flimsy. He imagines he could see them sway like a stagecloth and crumple to the ground, revealing again the true landscape beyond. He does not see that. He imagines that he could see that. But it's an irrational thought, the like of which he has never known till now. It troubles him. And as concerns myself, Grimm's ditch, here he has drawn a blank. To be truthful, I am not living up to Professor Marworth's expectation. But he is reluctant to abandon my name as his title. It will look so impressive on his conference listing. He'll give me one more chance. His map shows a group of three further sections of me below this ridgeway further west and not too distant. There's a car park marked there, too. Surely there'll be something of me visible somewhere there.
But here again I prove elusive. His road has led steeply up, long and straight from a village below. Parking at the Ridgeway track is more limited here. And walking back down, as again he must, still he can see nothing of me. Eastward, I very probably survive as the broken tumble of banks and mounds easily visible from the road, but these are in woodland marked private, and he can hear shooting. Westward of his road, a steep bank, fenced off, obscures all view toward what might be me. Beginning to feel actively thwarted by me now, he turns and starts to trudge his way back up the road to his car. Stumbling, rather footsore now, along the road's edge, he all but steps on something that at first disgusts him. Newly dead. A little creature not much longer than his foot. No head, its neck bloodily torn, a dirtied coat of dull, velvety grey-green and perfect tiny pink claws pathetically closed in death. He wonders, from the colour and texture of its coat, if this might be a mole? Again, something of which he has read. He knows the mole only as moleskin gloves, of course. Oh, and isn't it a class of cover for an old book? As he contemplates the little dead creature, it begins strangely to disquiet him. He feels somewhat affronted, indeed, that perhaps last night while he slept at the George, it has met just here its violent death for him to find. Back up at the Ridgeway track, reluctant still to acknowledge defeat, he sets off on foot westward in quest of a sighting of at least one of the three fragments of me shown on his map. He feels his options narrowing now. Punctually to his right, a path appears, exactly where marked on his map as leading toward me. But it cuts deeply into a high-growing crop with ugly flowers of a sour, mustard yellow. Soon I am amidst it as in a jungle. It gives off an unpleasant, oily smell. It's almost as tall as I, and I feel physically threatened by it. As though it might become mobile and wreathe about me and constrict me to death. And I'm worried now by those sounds of shooting. It's occurring to me that they are to a regular rhythm. In fact, as I listen, they suggest to me more the clack of a wooden football rattle being wound very slowly. I become conscious, too, of a sound that has been at the back of my hearing for some time now up here. The coarse calling of crows. Or perhaps are they rooks? if I'm to mention them as a presence at my Grimm's Ditch, and it would lend colour to the scene, I will need to be sure which. I suddenly feel so uncertain of, of so much. He becomes aware of the oily, scented crop thinning away about him. Soon he is on bare down again. The obnoxious prospect below, over research complex and power station, smites him anew. From this perspective, more is monstrously visible than before. The research complex seems to have opened and spread. 
Rightward, the two pair of cooling towers of the power station are revealed now as two threes. In the midday sun, their apocalyptic enormity is pale, almost white. And in whatever material they are made of, stone or concrete, some constituent is glittering. But even as he looks, he senses a thrust from his... What mental faculty he cannot tell, but fancies he could see the ugly rash of buildings imperfectly transform themselves. The prison-like building grows skyward, stepped and storied like the sacrificial escalier of some Aztec temple to the sun. And the titanic hourglass cooling towers are turned grey and stony, a hexad of giant megaliths that seem to reach the sky. For a brief moment, he feels a sympathy with the sentimental New Age delusion that Stonehenge was once some sort of storage battery for the power of the Earth. Whatever that is supposed to mean. He is feeling a terror and an exhilaration. Yes, he sees this. He is seeing this. The vision does not vanish. Reluctant as an early morning mist, it begins slowly to fade from the buildings, revealing them banal again and ugly as before. His exhilaration passes. The terror remains. Never in his life till now has his mind played such a trick on him. He stares at the modern structures below, as though to force his own rational seeing upon them there, to fix and hold them in their... in their reality, he would say. Yet spectral wreathings of the towering temple and megaliths seem still to cling about them, in his mind's eye never entirely gone. A hallucination, surely. For an uneasy moment, Professor Marworth entertains the question, might this be the onset of some... Disorder? The first manifestings of a tumour on his brain? He thinks perhaps he should not have obeyed that westward impulse this morning at the junction roundabout. He will go back to his car now, fold his expensive map away, and make for home. In the very moment of that decision, he has a glimpse of me grass-clad earthwork leftward of him, unmistakable. Grim's ditch, no question. He has seen me, he has seen me. Here is why he has come, here I am. But across the path to me, a warning bars his way. Private land. <sighs> Grim's ditch is forbidding me access, so be it. Now I will go home. Change of title must it be. From now the map will stay folded in its sheath. So why are we where we are now? 
Further west again, along the ridgeway, before a stone column rising from some steps and with a length of Grimm's ditch quite plain below us. And from yet further westward there, the figure of Professor Marworth hurrying along the track towards us and his car, here. Parked, you will observe, not where you have done, a good walk away back there, but here, close to the monument, well to this wrong side of that boundary of boulders that bars public vehicular access and which you respected. But Professor Marworth does not consider himself public, any more than he respects a car parking bay marked disabled or parent with child. The parking space provided way back there, he thought driver unfriendly, and when he came, was full. He simply drove onto the private surfaced farm road below, then up, albeit rather uncomfortably, over the furrowed and bumpy grass, as close to the monument as driving would bring him. But as he comes hurrying back towards his car here now, why does he keep glancing around behind him? We see no one pursuing. He's glancing behind him because since our last location, that of his apocalyptic vision of Aztec temple and sky-high Stonehenge, a change has come over Professor Marworth. As he had sat back into his car at Cuckhamsley Hill, jangled by the beheaded mole and resolved to abandon me, and as he struggled to fold his expensive map, crease perfect as it was before, his eyes caught by a name on that map. Forley. Printed quite small, it seems to denote a village. It's not a name that he recognises, but it snags at him for some reason he cannot define. No, he resolves, enough of being seduced by names, but it snags at him. The map remains open. Not quite knowing what he does, he drives down and along yet further west to the next road crossing of this ridgeway where we are now. In fact, for Forley, he has stopped one crossing short. But he's parked now here and with some effort. All he wants is a sighting of that village whose name so tugs at him. The map shows there a little cross and solid black square, conventional sign for a church with tower. That much he suddenly remembers now from geography lessons at school. He need walk west along the ridgeway only as far as a first glimpse of that tower. That should satisfy him. I needed to walk further than I had anticipated. The view to that tower seemed purposefully to elude me, but I'm under a compulsion to see it now. It's become a matter of self-respect. I reach the next road crossing, still no sighting. Guided by my map, I make off down that road there, southward in the direction of that village, ever hopping up onto the narrow carriageway's grass shoulder out of the path of the unremitting traffic. Not a walk to be recommended. Until at last, after some half mile, we come to a footpath, way marked off that road and towards the village. My map tells me that the slope my footpath now descends is called... Angel down, and... Ah! There we are. Ah, yes! The landscape has obeyed the map. 
Away across the gently, then more steeply rolling ploughland below me, amid high crowns of tall trees yonder, the church's tower rises, black and baleful, against the late afternoon sky. The ploughland slopes down from me, skewing a little, then upward again, then over and lost to sight in dead ground, before rising again beyond, towards where the village itself must be. The tillage all about me is a dark, russet brown, narrowly furrowed, giving a combed effect like... like... like corduroy, yes. How odd of me to think that. Corduroy. And it is sown, I now see, and sprouting short, fragile shoots as of young grass. And I'm hearing that sound as of shooting again, from somewhere over that ridge between me and the village. More than before is it like a wooden rattle now. And there's a harsh clamour of rooks from there, and rooks they must be. Yet another life-old crumb of knowledge has surfaced in me, a wisdom imparted by my father, perhaps, that the crow is more solitary, rooks flock in crowds. But it is not that that brings him hurrying back up here so anxiously towards us now. Down there, scrambling over that sown ploughland, stumbling along the grassy furrows of its corduroy towards the beckon of that black tower, he has seen up from beyond that tower a grey cloud riding strongly in from the southwest. Its shadow is vast, as of some great dark wing beating inward across that ridge before him. Already it is darkening that facing slope and beginning its sweep up his own slope toward him. In sudden mindless terror, he has turned and as though to flee that cloud, is stumbling upward, back up along the corduroy furrows, the way he has come. He must not let that shadow overtake him. He must not let it even fall on him, for fear of what the impalpable touch of it will surely do. But that shadow of that cloud is more than Professor Marworth can outrun. It reaches him, swift and silent, like a mortal blow, unphysical and of a ghastly soundlessness. All about him, the life dies from the light. A damp chill possesses his body. He senses something within him fatefully changed. And swift and soundless as it had come, the shadow passes on, unheeding of him, up the slope before him, and is gone. And Marworth, at first still running, then faltering and pausing from his breathlessness, and glancing fearfully around in dread of seeing yet more such clouds to follow, becomes aware of a figure on the brow of that ridge behind him, as though coming from that unseen village with the tower. No, rather as though delivered by that cloud, birthed from that shadow of it onto that hill, and now coming his way. 
Professor Marworth can discern nothing of him, no age, no physical attributes, nor even the character of his clothes, but he knows he does not want to see his face. So now he's hurrying back here. We see no figure following and visualize it. Marworth's is the only car remaining. For the afternoon is late and the air is suddenly cold. He regrets now having parked where he has and given himself such a distance to stumble of rough and furrowed ground to reach the shelter of his car and means of escape. The prospect northward now is flat and obscure. Away eastward, the research campus is a lusterless blur. The power station's monstrous towers have optically closed together again, as though turning their backs on him, abandoning him to some lonely fate. Whatever mineral it was that glittered there before, it glints no more. The towers are sulking and dark. But only fleetingly does he observe all this. As for myself, Grimm's Ditch, here is the best preserved remnant of me that I have shown all day. A continuous double bankment, foss narrow and distinct between. From some distance, deep within himself, now at last and with some pang of regret, he sees me. But he has eyes for me no more. As he turns his distracted glance from me to make towards his lonely car, the figure that has followed him is here, at his side. The professor's first impression is of a young farmhand from a TV period drama. The youthful countenance is aged as by some loss. I reckon I should see him tonight. See what? But that setting sun look. Broke up like loke of an egg. Shan't be the light to lighten. Anyway, northeast there. What, the towers, you mean? <laughs> see no towers. It's all dark there now. First time I come up here with an open the sight of it. That barn we're building the back of us there. Builders had a ladder. I asked him if I could climb it to see it better. Barn? Where? Professor Marworth can see back there only the boundary of boulders and the empty parking space. They seem suddenly very far away. He sees the young rustic is looking that way too, bothered by something. I think it was there. Or were that further back along the ridge way? I climbed that ladder and, and I saw... I think I saw... Saw what? The windows of Christminster. Lit up by the sun from the west. I, I don't know that I know of Christminster. Is it a school? The great city of light. They speak Latin there like it'd be native to them. Me. I have to work at it so hard. Were you coming from that village back there? Mary Green, sir, yeah. No, no back there below the ridgeway. There's a village called Forley. Forley be my name? I, uh... No, this can't be where I'd climb that ladder. That monument weren't there. But memorial be this. Already the stranger is away and up those steps and moving slowly around the plinth, looking up at the column, feeling at the stone. Portland limestone. Must have brought it in. Whoever. 
Inscription here, look. Latin. My Latin's rather rusty, I'm afraid. This lettering is very worn, and uh, it's spattered with this stuff. Leichen. Yeah, very difficult lettering to make out. But from this, you must invent a plausible translation to impress. To Marworth's surprise and pique, the young rustic is ahead of him. In orbito pace. Peace, uh, that is. Prayer for some, Mum. For peace in his passing. Pax. <coughs> peace, yes. Post obitum salus. After his passing. Salus. Salus. Salutus. Feminine third. Ah. As in Italian. Salute. Health. No, sir. Can't mean health. Not here. Sound very sure. Can't be praying for their health when someone's dead. It must mean salvation. After death, salvation. Mm. Oh, yeah. Goes on, see? Post tenebra lux. Light. Light. After darkness, light. And. In luce spes. Luce. Ablative case in light. Ablative of place where must be. If you can call light a place. In light, hope. Latin's all very well for reading old inscriptions, laddie. It won't get you anywhere in the world. It will at Christminster. It's all dark away there now. Only now is Marworth seeing him. Sorrowful dark eyes. Untidy beard a size too large. The dust-toughened look of the skin of his forehead and hands. And yes, dust in that beard too. Suddenly, Marworth sees what this man is. He works with stone, a monumental mason, perhaps. Of course, cutting gravestones. That is why he scrutinized and felt at this monument as he did. He's assessing its workmanship. That's how this rustic can know his scraps of Latin. Well, the Latin of inscriptions. He's not a scholar. I don't know about this Christminster of yours. As for Latin, I can tell you I'm a professor in a university and we are under a directive from management to discontinue the use of Latin phrases in our writing and speech. Ad hoc, quid pro quo, etc. People don't understand them now. It's patronizing. It makes people feel inferior. I don't take your meaning, sir. Latin makes people feel small. It don't make me feel small. When I see Latin, it makes me want to learn it. His eyes burn with a simple candor that makes Professor Marworth want to strike his stupid, needful face. He has to turn away. Forget Latin, laddie. Stick to your stone. Look, sir. Luce. It is place where. In Christminster, I'll be in light. I understand it. Not just the grammar, I, I hear what it says, as if it were my own tongue. This is over a hundred years ago, boy. The date, look. 1901. Forget it. What? That can't be right. 1900. That's next century. How can that be? That's... I'm long gone by then. You... That date? I am dead. I thought, talking to you, sir, I were alive. I thought I'd been alive all along. I'm not dead after all. I, I've got time to get it all right. Christminster and, and Sue and, and that. And I am dead. 
Oh, I were well named Jude. Patron saint of lost causes. Wait. Professor Marworth has reached out to grasp his shoulder to hold him here, as though a long-lost son returned from the dead. But he knows what will happen now. And it has. The young man simply is not here. And no sign nor sound of him in any direction. Now seizes the professor a first irrational thought. Was that an apparition? What silly people call a ghost? Take a grip on yourself, Marworth. Such things happen only in novels. You have no time for fiction, like Latin, a waste of mental effort in this real world. A hallucination, then? That would be worrying. Not like the soaring Harwell Temple and Didcot Stonehenge. Those were a moment of wild fancy and totally uncharacteristic of him. This, just now, was a dialogue, an entire encounter, a sustained delusion. Seriously worrying. No, no. Come on, Marworth. There has to be a rational explanation. Yours is not the problem. That young man, the problem's with him. That odd, obsessive young man who vanished so suddenly. Of course, the professor knows only too well how quickly the insane can move, especially if they've managed to escape from an institution. He remembers his own mother. In late dementia, out of his and his father's sight for barely half a minute, and already shuffling halfway across the hospital lawns in her gown and slippers. Not that this strange young man was anything like that. Nonetheless, Marworth would put him definitely somewhere on the autistic spectrum. Asperger's syndrome, at least. Oh, very definitely. And his disappearing. The day is fading. Much is shadow now about this monument. The light is strange. Even so, the encounter, like everything else on this Grimm's ditch, will sit ill in a discourse. A disturbed young rustic who could put him right on a matter of Latin? Visions of warrior tribesmen? His father running with him like a stolen pig to a public air raid shelter? Flowers and birds that beset him with their names he does not know? A beheaded mole? No more of this. A research campus morphing into an Aztec temple. A power station's cooling towers rearing skyward as a gigalithic Stonehenge. A pursuing cloud giving birth on an angel down to an autistic apprentice mason with stone dust in his beard. No more of these. No more. Marworth will suppress all mention of these. He will go home now. Now. And tomorrow begin to prepare for his appearance at the conference. He will hold fast to his intellectual train set and guide it very carefully along his own chosen tracks. Discourse he will give, and this Grimm's ditch shall not derail him. Startlingly, 
The great day is already here. So soon. He has arrived at the conference venue to find himself instantly mortified. Billed not to appear in the main hall, but as a side event in some obscure seminar room. The route to this is waymarked around corridor corners, up flights of stairs with amateurish cardboard arrows, each epigraphed with his name in its own grotesque misspelling. Marworth Lecture. Professor Warmoth. And one singularly offending him, simply Wrathworm. His following, the proverbial select few, six or so, sit waiting for him in a corner of a dance rehearsal space surrounded by ballet bars and wall mirrors and on cheap and nasty chairs that slide about and clank against each other. A heavy lectern is set before him whose height he cannot adjust. At last, abandoning all attempt as belittling him with assumed self-confident smile of greeting and authoritative sweep of his gaze, he opens his mouth to pronounce his cherished beginning. Let me set for you the scene. But out from me comes a voice like that of a mocking medieval devil, an abrasive booming that slurs and drops in pitch like the sound from an old gramophone record slowing down. I glimpse, as in a silent film clip, the semicircle of faces before me, distorted each in a rictus of laughter, their mouths blackly agape like Francis Bacon's screaming popes, and their shoulders heaving like turbulent waters breaking soundlessly towards the curve of a shore. Suddenly, I myself feel turned to water. I can no longer lift that voice up from within me, sounding like someone else's as it does, growling, slurred, and heavy as a stone. I feel a sensation of my own body, too, as not mine anymore, but taking me down with it, waving like a reed and sinking and slowly subsiding to thump into a sitting posture on the ground, convulsed and weeping. But it is not merely weeping. It is as when the cover of that well in the folk story has been lifted. Up come welling, long-buried waters breaking from him in wild torrents of tears. He sits, shaken and helpless, the salt secretions pouring from his eyes. He barely sees the whispering shapes that gather around him. He senses that he is now somehow lying on his side, and not on an interior floor, but on cold stone steps and outside somewhere in a twilight. He sees, but does not register, away in the far leftward corner of his vision, the approach of some vehicle with a flashing blue light. Good visitor. My name is Grimm's Ditch. I offer strange gifts. Be ready to receive. And stay a moment, I'm not finished yet with Professor Marworth. 
From the beginning of this, he narcissistically envisioned how his listing on the conference syllabus would appear. And we see now how deeply he feared for the spelling of his name. Alas, here is now how in the syllabus his slot is listed. Main Lecture Theatre, 8pm. Dr. Yukio Kishimoto, visiting lecturer in English Literature in the University of Aberystwyth. Principles informing character and place names in the Wessex novels of Thomas Hardy. There is a footnote, ill-punctuated and ungrammatical, such has academia become in these post-Latinist days. We are grateful to Dr. Kishimoto, who deputizes at short notice due to the sudden illness of Professor Ormroth. David Rudkin's Grimm's Ditch was performed by Toby Jones, Juliet Stevenson and Jack Wilkinson, directed by Jack McNamara with sound and music by Adam McCready. It was produced by New Perspectives Theatre Company, funded by The Space and Arts Council England. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us with a review and subscribing to the series. To learn more about our work and watch the accompanying short films by Grant G, please visit newperspectives.co.uk.